Hello and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. My name is Daniel Vincent, here with my co-host Sean Cheatham. Uh, you can find us and other good podcasts at reformpodcasts.com. And I also want to plug our blog. I know other uh, people have been reading that, but at theparticularbaptist.net, check us out. Uh, we try to write there. We've been a little slow lately, but hopefully we'll be uh, getting back to writing more for that, but theparticularbaptist.net. Uh, but Today we're taking a little bit of a different turn with regards to our discussion. We're going to be talking about baptism and regeneration. Uh, in particular, we're going to be t- responding to a video uh, by Dr. Jordan Cooper, <clears throat> who is a Lutheran. Uh, really, do they call themselves ministers, Sean or Andrew? Yeah, or pastors, yeah, ministers. Okay, some kind of okay, uh, Lutheran. Yeah. Okay, uh, Lutheran minister um, and scholar, uh, where he talks about uh, is baptism really necessary? are always necessary for uh, regeneration. So we're going to be talking about that today. Um, but before we get into that, I want to say uh, we do respect, all of us respect Dr. Jordan Cooper. We consider him a brother uh, despite our differences. Um, but we do believe that these are real uh, differences and that they are important and we should discuss them. Um, so we're going to be uh, responding to this video uh, today. And Sean, Andrew, anything you want to uh, bring up before we get started? Uh, no, I think you said that pretty well, but just give a little bit of, you know, from a personal perspective, like I've watched a lot of uh, Dr. Cooper's videos, like over the last year or so, like he actually does have a lot of good content. So I'd I recommend him for that. But yeah, as you said, like that doesn't stop these from being real and important disagreements that we mm-hmm. have with him here, uh, particularly the issue of uh, continuous justification can be dangerous if, if, if you push that very far, but, but we do view him as a brother. So, so yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, discussing this with y'all. Yeah, that, that's a good point. Yeah. We want, we want to be cordial towards Dr. Cooper. This isn't meant to be a bashing video word. Uh, but, you know, as, as the reformers did in their time, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, there, there were disagreements that they worked through uh, with the church around them. So, you know, Mercy can do that here as well. With that, we'll go ahead and pull this up and get started related to that here people are asking about regeneration and, and baptism so is regeneration always tied to baptism well regeneration and, is certainly tied to baptism and actually it might be good if we give just a tiny bit of a background of what baptismal regeneration is for those who might not know listening um baptismal regeneration <clears throat> in a nutshell uh, from the lutheran perspective is that um you can be born again through baptism and baptism constitutes the word of God and water and the word working in and with the water and with faith. Now that's how the small uh, catechism in the book of Concord defines that. Um, So it's essentially uh, the word of God and the sacrament working together to bring about regeneration um, and also salvation as well. Um, And this obviously would fly in the face of what we as Baptists believe uh, baptism holds uh, to in terms of what it communicates and and its purpose. It's very different and pretty much in all the reformed actually. So they really stand distinct in that way. I don't know of any other um, maybe maybe Roman Catholics. I, I don't know, but I, I think they're pretty unique in the way that they uh, present this view of baptism. Um, but I just wanted to give just a brief background before we dive into it for those who may not uh, know and- what that is. I will note um, for our reform listeners when, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Andrew, uh, when Lutherans talk about being born again or regeneration, they don't quite mean the same things that the typical reform person would, because the typical reform person is going to be thinking of that initial state where faith is given to um, whoever has been born again. Uh, Whereas I think the Lutherans have more of a a general view of, uh, or, more of just imparting of spiritual life. It's a little bit broader than that, right? Um, so they, I remember in this video, he actually uh, doesn't affirm the view of some earlier oh. form people that it's it's that it's more of a continuous process. Okay. Like, um, um, and he would just call it sanctification. Um, I don't know if they would have exactly the same definition as we have, uh, but... It, it'd be, it, it seems like he mostly defines it as, as a moment that you receive okay. upon baptism. And that's actually going to be a, a factor in this video as we go forth. And maybe I shouldn't say too much before we go, a, go ahead. But um, he, 
because he's asked if is regeneration always tied to baptism, but he kind of de- deflects and talks about justification instead. Implicitly, it seems to be an acknowledgement that it's not always associated with uh, baptism, and then he's insisting that it's still doing something for your standing before God. At least that's how I, I took the video, but we can kind of see that as the video plays on. Okay, we've got texts like John 3. We've got the washing of regeneration in Titus 3. We have, you can watch videos that I've done dealing with baptism texts or listen to podcasts I've done in, in depth. So this is just very over cursory overview here. But uh, you can even look at Ezekiel. The giving of the new heart is tied to a sprinkling of water. Um, so uh, what I don't think you can do is take the typical kind of reformed approach and divide the sign and the thing signified they always go together as in I, what I don't see is the notion of empty signs. So, no, like that's, to... that's a straw man. Yeah. Straw man. Yeah. We don't believe that baptism uh, is an empty sign. Uh, we do believe that it, it, it is ultimately a sign, but it does communicate grace in a sense. We do believe it's a means of grace. Um, and Andrew, you can go ahead. I, I interrupted you. I'm sorry. Oh, no, no, it's no problem. Um, I was just going to say, cause he's talking about is baptism tied with regeneration and to me, the issue under dispute isn't so much whether Scripture ties baptism with regeneration on a conceptual level, because right. I wouldn't dispute that it does and that there are texts that do this. It's a matter of are they temporally tied together? Um, he's he's going to be talking about are they always temporally tied together, but I would actually question whether they are normatively ever tied together temporally. Now, I wouldn't say that there couldn't be a weird case where somebody had a false profession of faith that they thought they were genuine, and as they were coming to be baptized, the sacrament, preaching the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection to them, imparted real faith, and they were regenerated there. But normatively, we would say that baptism is is not uh, temporally tied to regeneration. But as you said, too, it's also not an empty side. It's it's a it's a it's a means of grace and uh, uh, helps to confirm uh, the the new covenant unto us and that we're new covenant members. Um, just for a start, yeah, and and we see that in uh, in a couple of Reformed confessions. Our confession, uh, the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter twenty nine, paragraph one, uh, when it talks about baptism, it does say it's a sign, but it does say it in such a way that it's communicating the gospel through it. It is communicating the word of God through it. Um, and like you said, Andrew, if you, uh, there, there can be those who could be saved through the gospel being preached in baptism. Um, but that does not therefore follow that the uh, sign itself is saving or regenerating. It's the word of God preached in the sign. Yeah. Um, and, and I think the Belgic confession lays this out very clearly uh, in article 33 about that. It's not just merely an empty, uh, symbol in terms of the sacraments, and that would include baptism. Uh, it says, we believe that our good God, uh, mindful of our crudeness and weakness, has ordained sacraments for us to seal his promise in us, to pledge goodwill and grace toward us, and also to nourish and sustain our faith. God has added to uh, these to the word of the gospel to represent better to our external senses both what God enables us to understand by the word and what he does inwardly in our hearts, confirming in us that the salvation he imparts to us. For they are visible signs and seals of something internal and invisible by means of which God works in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. So they are not empty and hollow signs to fool and deceive us, for their truth is in Jesus Christ, without whom they would have nothing. Um, so they point to something. They communicate something. Baptism signifies our death and or being united to Christ's death and, and raising uh, to new life. It signifies the washing of sin. It communicates something. It's telling the world around us, this is who we're identifying with and what we're identifying with. Um, so it, it's certainly not just an empty symbol that uh, that is administered in worship. So, And when the Spirit's attached to it with the preaching of the gospel, it even can be used as a means of sanctification, just like the Lord's yes. Supper is. Um, so we, we don't know the exact nature of what the Spirit communicates to us during baptism, but we know that it doesn't justify us and it doesn't regenerate us. And the examples of baptism that we see in Scripture actually support that. And if we have time, we'll probably go into that more mm-hmm. later. Yep. Yep. 
Um, he did mention John three. Do we want to go into John three yet or keep going? Um, well, I suppose John three won't come up again. Um, mm. I'll say briefly, cause I think it might get us too much on a tangent. Um, first of all, we would dispute that baptism, like the actual the physical act of baptism is in view in John three. They're, they're, Two different interpretations. One that's actually referring to the first birth, which I think makes good sense of the context because it's talking about your that the first birth isn't enough. You need to have your second birth. And in the previous verse, Nicodemus was just asking you about the first birth. Other people take it as just referring to the uh, what's being symbolized by baptism, which is the washing of the spirit. But but in either case. Um, I don't think the verse helps Lutherans as much as they think that it does because it says more than they're willing to say because Jesus is saying that uh, I have it open here. Let me, I have my ribbon on it. So I'll just read it real quick. Um, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter in the kingdom of God. But the reality is, as we'll see, uh, faith before baptism is affirmed by Lutherans as as salvific. In other words, being born of the spirit without being born of the water gets you into the kingdom of God. In fact, I don't think they would ever say there's any case where somebody's born of the spirit and not according to them of the water and they won't see the kingdom of God. But Jesus is saying both of these things are necessary. Uh, but when there's no case, when somebody has one of them without the other, namely they have spirit but not water baptism uh, and aren't going to heaven. And also conversely that there's no case where somebody's just baptized but doesn't have the spirit and they're going to heaven even by their own uh, theology, uh, it, it, it seems to be saying more than they want it to say here. And I don't think it's reasonable to think Nicodemus is just talking about um, like the normal, excuse me, Jesus is just talking about the normal experience. Oh, you receive him through the water and the spirit. He's talking to Nicodemus here. That's not going to happen to him. He's going to have faith before he's baptized. It, it just does not fit the context at all if he's just like, oh, well, for future reference, it's usually by the water and spirit, like it, that would be very out of place here. Mm. So I did end up going into it in more depth than I planned <laughs> to, but uh, uh, I would. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I would like to note it's very interesting. The first two verses, um, when he's thinking about this, out of out of his mouth are verses that actually don't have the word baptism in it. It's either water and in, in uh, John three or in uh, Titus three five. It's uh, washing, right? And I did, I did confirm and look in the Greek, and it's not the underlying word baptizo there. It's a, it's another word for washing. So it's very interesting that um, the the go to verses uh, don't even have the word baptism in it. It's just sort of a assumed there automatically. Well, these are obviously talking about baptism. Um, obviously, Lutherans do go to other places than uh, than those that do contain the word baptism. I'm not saying that they've entirely built their theology on those two verses, but uh, it was just very. It struck me as odd. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's it's read into the text. It's assumed. Yep. If you were to use the hermeneutic of building from the clear to the unclear, it would be um, that would not be the place you would necessarily want to start. No. Yeah, that's true. Yep. And I, I think uh, Jordan even talked about, or I don't know if he does in this video, but elsewhere, um, that the understanding of uh, washing or regeneration, um, I think he was referring to, was more of a church tradition as understanding it rather than uh, pulling that from the text, which would be consistent with how he seems to uh, interpret history and, and hermeneutics. But hmm. Yeah, he's very much driven by church history. At least that's yep. my observation of it. And church history is good. We're not saying sure. it, that's bad, but uh, we ultimate scripture, sola scriptura is our ultimate authority, and that's where we uh, pull these things from, even if the church fathers did something uh, that contradicts it. And God never promised to preserve orthodox views of every doctrine and no. uh, the extant historical records, which mostly come from monastic uh, copyists who probably selected things that were more favorable to them, or at least figures that they held in high regard. Uh, just not, not, not the stable foundation I want for my theology. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> or we can get into that, into that. I don't want to get too into that right now, but because um, I have plenty of other place uh, places that talk about that. So, um, so is that, is regeneration always tied to baptism? So scripture certainly ties regeneration to baptism. It does. But scripture also speaks about being born again through the word of God. 
So regeneration is worked through the means of grace. Okay. Regeneration is worked through the means of grace, which means that God does regenerate and he regenerates through the word. And what we have to understand in terms of baptism and Martin Luther in his small catechism explains it in saying that it is not the water alone, right? It's not that in baptism we have magical water. Okay. There's something special. So it, this is we were talking about this before we started the show, but how he separates uh, the word and the the sacrament itself. Now, now, if you look at the confession of Lutheranism, at least classical Lutherans, I don't know if the the more modern uh, liberal movement would hold to the Augsburg Confession, but for Orthodox Lutherans, it's, it's the Augsburg Confession. Um, Article two lays out really a, a the anthropology and her what do they view man's state before God. Uh, and it, in Article 2, it says, Also they teach that since the fall of Adam, all men begotten in the natural way are born with sin, that is, without the fear of God, without trust in God, and with concupiscence. Uh, that means like very strong desire, essentially with a passion. Um, and that this disease or vice of origin is truly sin, even now condemning and bringing eternal death upon those not born again through baptism and the Holy Ghost. Um so I find it interesting that he separates these uh, these two things, the word, and somehow that can uh, create regeneration or bring regeneration uh, before you're baptized. However, the Augsburg clearly says that unless you don't have these things, you are condemned and, and you will receive eternal death uh, because you're dead in your sins. Um, and we would agree with the first part of this uh, part that, there, we do live without trust in God. Uh, we do, uh, with a passion, pursue our sin. Um, and so we would agree with that. And what's funny is he's going to go on to say um, that you can have faith before before you are baptized. Um, but Article 2 explicitly says that uh, men in their natural state, it, they're not only without fear of God, it says they're without trust in God. Um, and, and saving faith is having a trust in God and in having a trust in the gospel and what Christ did and truly embracing that and receiving that. Um, so how can, how can a fallen man have this faith um, apart from these things that are clearly laid out as being regenerated? Unless you are born again, unless you are made new, according to the Augsburg, um, you're going to be condemned. So th- this seems to create uh, some inconsistencies e- even among his own theological a foundation, and we haven't even gotten to the biblical argument yet. But just from a, his own position, it seems to create um, it seems to create problems. Yeah, certainly the language of the Augsburg is a lot stronger than most Lutherans interpreting it want to uh, uh, concede. And I wouldn't necessarily say that the the Melanchthon and the like would have said like, "Oh yeah, you you." D- 100% of the time, you need baptism to be saved. Like They might have also had the view of Aquinas, you know, baptism of desire kind of thing. But the words they use, it just doesn't sound like it. it it's, no. it's like they want to have it both <laughs> ways. You know, like we want to say, and I don't know if you're going to bring up this part later where it talks about like the necessity of it. Like they want to say both it's it's necessary, but it's not really necessary, or it's not absolutely necessary. But I mean, necessary means necessary. So why are you using that <laughs> language? Um but it, but again, it just it, it it can be a little bit frustrating because like it's because then like the the, the surface level interp- of impression you get at least reading these things is not then what would be explained to you later when you ask about these sections. So it, it, you almost wish they would rewrite the thing. Then, yeah, and, yeah. Like and even in about. in Melanchthon's apology of the Augsburg, at at least in my study of it, I couldn't find anything that clarified or or made exceptions of that. Um, and I found that very interesting because you would think in in an apology because the apology in in that context apology means defense, um, and so you would think that in a defense or a, or an exposition in that way it would be laid out clearly what is meant by that. Um, so maybe there is lack of clarity, or he just didn't believe it. I don't know, but yeah, it, on it on the on the surface it seems that he's saying, or or the writer of the Augsburg is saying that um, you can't be regenerated apart from baptism of the Holy Spirit. I think that creates problems. And then he, re- uh, Jordan also referred to the shorter catechism. Uh, that's question three. Uh, it said, or 
I think it's the short catechism. Uh, how can water do such great things? Answer, it is not the water indeed that does them, but the word of God that is in and with the water and faith would trust such word of God in the water. For without the word of God, the water is simple water and no baptism, but with the word of God, it is a baptism that is a gracious water of life and washing of regeneration in the Holy Ghost, as St. Paul says. And then he quotes Titus chapter three. Um, and even here, uh, the word and the water are never separated. They're always put together. Luther wrote the short catechism. Um, it, so he ties the washing of regeneration directly to baptism and ties the word of God with it. He never separates it. Um, and I also I find that very interesting as well, um, that he Jordan will separate it here. But then he quotes something from Luther um, that clearly ties them together. Um, and, and Luther is going back to Titus chapter three to try and, and back up his position. So really, the question is, uh, how, why in the world can you have saving faith uh, if they're being tied together? Uh, how can that faith be separate from the regeneration uh, of baptism? So again, another, I think, internal inconsistency uh, that we see here. But even from, from a biblical perspective, uh, he'll, you know, he says, yes, yeah, Scripture says that the Word of God does regenerate. It does, um, it does have a saving effect, essentially, outside of baptism. Um, and we do see that in the scriptures, obviously. I think Romans 10 is one of the best places that you mm. can find about that. Or Romans 10, 5 through 11, um, especially where it talks about the word of God uh, being necessary unto salvation. Uh, verse 14, uh, and how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And I, I think you can certainly infer regeneration in there because in order, these are people who have never heard the word of God and they have to hear the word in order to receive it, which regeneration would be part of that process, obviously. Um, so we clearly see the word as the means that uh, not only salvation is coming because they hear the word, they receive it. And Paul says, whoever's going to believe in Christ, they'll be saved. The call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But they got to hear it first, and that comes through the Word of God, and the Word of God works effectively. The Spirit works the Word of God in our hearts, um, apart from baptism, in order to bring about that salvation uh, and regeneration. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's more the exegetical argument from that. But I think Romans 10 is an excellent place to go to. And I think he would agree that that is a very, uh, and that might be where he's pulling this from and saying, well, you know, the Word of God does play a role in regeneration. We do see that in the Scriptures. Um, but I, I think that creates problems for them. Yeah, it's interesting you said that it, it comes through the means of grace. Um, yeah, the means of yeah, grace. Like, yep. And you're saying that Scripture teaches this, but Scripture only lists one means of grace as giving faith, and that Correct. is the Word. That's yes. Romans 10. There's no passage of Scripture which, in, uh, which suggests that you're, you're given faith by uh, anything else but, but the Word of God. Uh, and that apart from the sacraments. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, he would go, I think, to Acts, like Acts 2.38, as a place where baptism does bring about forgiveness of sins. Um, and I think that's pretty easy to demonstrate from other places in Acts, like Acts 10, where Cornelius was clearly uh, believing, and he had received the Holy Spirit prior to his baptism. And, and Peter even uh, waited to see the evidence of it. Uh, before I think they started speaking in tongues and then Peter was like, okay, they got the Holy spirit. I guess we can baptize them now. Um, because the apostles couldn't read the heart. Um, and Peter explicitly told those who were listening that they had to believe in order to receive forgiveness of sins. Um, and then after that happened, they received the Holy spirit and then they were baptized. So I think there's, there's other examples and Sean, you had shared, uh, what was it from acts eight? Yeah. So do we want to, do we want to go through all the verses in Acts now? Um, Sure. Yeah, we might as well. Yeah. So um, there are in Acts, the book of Acts, there are four major outpourings of the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit is poured on groups of people, right? That's in Acts 2, Acts 8, Acts 10, and Acts uh, 19. So looking at these, like if we were to try to develop a, um, a theology of okay, what how does baptism relate to the Holy Spirit? These would be the places to go. Um, and whatever your your position you hold, you have to be able to explain what happens in every single one of these uh passages. If you don't, then your your, your system doesn't work. So I actually want to leave Acts 2 for last, 
we'll start at Acts 8, and this is verses uh, 14 through 17. Now, when the apostles, which were at Jerusalem, heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who, when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. For as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then laid they their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost. So here we've seen the uh, the Samaritans have believed, um, and they've um, they have believed, but they have not yet received the Holy Ghost. They believed and been baptized, and have not received the Holy Ghost. So clearly, here, if we were to expect that baptism would immediately um, give you the Holy Ghost, we see that this is not the case here, and that that language is very interesting. For as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Um, that would seem to me to be explicitly contradictory um, to Lutheran theology on that point. And then um, Acts 10, uh, verses 44 through 47. So this is uh, uh, Peter after he's been preaching to the Gentiles. Uh, While Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all of them which heard the word. And they of the circumcision which believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then answered Peter, Can any man forbid water, that these should be not should not be baptized, which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? So here we actually see that the Holy Ghost has been poured out before baptism. But once again, we see that it's not connected to their baptism. And I actually want to go on a little bit to Acts 11, verses 15 and 16. This is Peter uh, describing the events in Acts 10 um, to members of the circumcision party. Uh, And as I began to speak, the Holy Ghost fell on them, as on us at the beginning. Then remembered I the word of the Lord, how that he said, John indeed baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost. So Peter here is making a distinction between water baptism and baptism with the Holy Ghost. And uh, at least the Lutherans I encountered don't like to make this distinction. They want to say that baptism, when used in the New Testament, always refers to water baptism. They even hate the phrase water baptism because it implies that there would be another kind of baptism. I've seen that that described before. But uh, here we see that Peter describing these events where they had yet to be water baptized and the Holy Ghost had fallen them. He's saying that was the baptism of the Holy Ghost that John had prophesied about. Um, so there is a distinction being made. Mm-hmm. That's that's really key because they'll, they'll, they'll say that like, oh, well, yeah, it says John baptized with the Holy Ghost. And they're referring to the account in, in, the, in the Gospels. And then it, he says, oh, John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost. And they were like, oh, yeah, he's just saying that John's baptism didn't confer the spirit with him. It's distinct from the Christian baptism. That's what some people will argue. Uh, but here, these people had the Christian baptism, and he's distinguishing it from the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So even the baptism of the Holy Spirit uh, in the Christian baptism is distinct uh, from just uh, the water baptism. And then moving on to Acts 19. Acts 19, uh, verses 2 through 6. This is um, Paul having come upon some that have received John's baptism, uh, but did, did not even know there was a, a Holy Ghost, and um, they, don't, they aren't indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He said unto them, Have ye received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, Unto what then were ye baptized? And they said, Unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied. So here, once again, we see that while it's almost at the same time as their baptism, it's not until Paul lays hands on uh these believers that they receive the holy ghost i would actually say you you have you would have a better case um trying to say that um the laying on hands is necessary for the reception of the holy ghost than you would uh baptism based on these these couple passages 
But here we see um, that once again, it's not it's not detached. It's not in order with uh, with baptism. Um, so that'll bring us uh, back to Acts two. And Acts two, I do want to say at the start when we see when we actually do see the Holy Spirit outpoured upon the apostles. Uh, obviously, this is far removed from their baptism. Uh, in Acts two verses one through four, when uh, they're in the uh, in the uh, in one place in the upper room, and uh, the Spirit is poured out upon them, uh, that baptism is nowhere in sight. Now later on, obviously, Peter when he's preaching. Um, in Acts 2, verses 37 and 39, these are, this is the events. Now, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God should call. So here's here's the verse that you'll you'll see um, people trying to make the argument that baptism is what uh, gives you the Holy Ghost. But as we've seen in the other examples in Acts, that's not necessarily the case. And ultimately, uh, this part in Acts, uh, this section in Acts doesn't relay exactly when they received the Holy Ghost, if it was at the moment of baptism or some other time. Um it, it seems to me just to be a, a commandment, repentant and be baptized. That's obviously, you know, to repent, it's related to faith, but it's uh, related to salvation and be baptized. That's the act of faith right there. And you will receive the Holy Spirit. That's that's what we would expect. And that's the way I ultimately ha- uh, view all these passages, whether it's done with the laying on hands, done before baptism or receive the Holy Spirit before baptism or after baptism. Um these things are sort of all over the place, but ultimately the one thing that is the same is they all received it, received the Holy Spirit after faith. And that's what we would get from Galatians 3, uh, verses 2 through 3, uh, Paul speaking to the Galatians. This only would I learn of you, received ye the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing of faith? Are ye so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? So we receive the Spirit by faith. That is the means by which the spirit, we receive the spirit. And ultimately, as we've read from uh, Romans 10, uh, we have faith through the, he- the hearing and preaching of the word of God. So that is the means by which we receive the spirit. Yeah. Yeah. People could, uh, you know, argue that in some cases you've had faith earlier and then they receive like the sign gifts of the spirit. But in either case, you never receive like the spirit and dwelling on you. Um, without having faith. So whenever you have an example like Acts 10, where they have the spirit before faith, like Paul says that you receive the spirit by faith and that uh, uh, whoever is not the spirit of Christ is none of his, uh, that we have the spirit by virtue of being in Christ. If you've, uh, if, if uh, you, you've been adopted as sons, you've, you've, uh, uh, you've been given the spirit of adoption, excuse me referencing Galatians 4 poorly. Um, but that's the universal testimony of the, of the scriptures. They're not going to receive the spirit uh, before they have faith and are regenerated in the other sense. Yeah, and, and even in Acts 10, uh, I think you're referencing uh, Romans chapter 8, where Paul contrasts between those in the flesh and those in the spirit. And those who are in the spirit, they have the spirit. And if you don't have the spirit, you're not Christ. The obvious implication means if you have the spirit, you are his. And so when Cornelius and the Gentiles received, then um, they received the spirit, that was the sign that they were his. And that's immediately told Peter, hey, they should be baptized. This is look, they've received, they believe they're Christians. Yeah. So why shouldn't they receive the, the sign? Yeah. And I think this is really crucial for the discussion because people often have accused people who deny baptism or generation you're, you're, that we're just kind of explaining the way why they don't have to be connected. It's like, oh, but the more natural reading is that they are connected in these in these texts and you receive it at the same time. Like, no, actually, every time we see this in action, it's telling us that they're not temporally connected. This isn't something we're reading on the text. We're doing what we, we do everywhere else in Scripture. Whenever you have uh, a command that are, are a doctrinal statement that can be taken in multiple different ways, you, you look at the actual example Scripture lays out in your interpretation of it, just like – when scripture tells us to be uh, 
to be uh, gentle-minded, to be uh, soft uh, and everything, like easy to to uh, to, to come to. Um, we don't interpret that uh, based off of the 21st century definition of what it looks like to be gentle. Uh, we, we do it off of the apostolic example, which sometimes looks like despising even the garments that defile their flesh, as, as Jude does. Um, so we, we, we uh, in, in those those extreme cases. So we, we let scripture's example determine how we uh, interpret broad, uh, ambiguous statements, not the other way around. Yeah. Um, and, and it's, yeah. And, and people do that with the doctrine of God too. You know, Hey, it, it says this, it appears to just naturally say this. So we should believe this about God, even though um, it, it's more complex for lack of a better term than that mm -hmm. we have to let scripture interpret scripture and that's mm -hmm. yes. i think really what this comes down to is we have a different hermeneutical framework that we're working from uh, we're imposing some sort of preset or he's imposing some sort of presupposition into his hermeneutics and that is affecting how he's interpreting these passages of scripture instead of just letting more clearer passages and, and that's one thing i love about um you know the reformed as our, our confession and uh, the Westminster Confession is in particular, those two, um, that it lays out that hermeneutic that the clearer passages must interpret the less clear. And if we keep that in mind, it will help us to not fall into these uh, these ditches in terms of hermeneutical error. Uh, so it's very crucial that we have these hermeneutical principles in mind. That's really what it boils down to. How are you interpreting the text and what method are you using to get there? Now we should probably let Dr. Cooper talk. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, I think it's going to be a bit of a longer video than we intended. Yeah. Although that's honestly the majority of our big points, besides continual justification. Uh, at least it's yep, mine. Yep. I don't know, Dan, if, if Sean... If well, we'll, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> it's an important topic. It requires a lot of... You, know, you, you, you can't just breeze through it, unfortunately. Yeah, it, we, it's a good discussion, though. I, I, you know, these these things are they're not easy necessarily. You know, that sometimes you go, "Wow, First Peter three twenty one does say baptism saves." You know, it, you have to wrestle with that. You have to deal with it. Um, but you know, keeping like I said, keeping these hermeneutical principles in mind, the, the consistent ones that we find, uh, will help us to uh, avoid these pitfalls, even with difficult passages like that. Um, we don't just write them off. We have to deal with them. It's in the scriptures. It's God's word. We have to find out what he's saying. Um, but we have to do so carefully and, and, and with wisdom. And thankfully for that example, that very verse answers the question for yes. us. Because it's not the cleansing <laughs> of the washing away the filth of the flesh. Yes. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, and, and I think we had to address this stuff early on in the video because, like I said early on, he'll, he'll pivot away from the issue of regeneration at this point um, and talk about justification. So that's the section when he'll at least bring up the text. Obviously he doesn't defend them fully, but hopefully we've at least presented a formidable challenge against his view of those texts by looking at the clear examples of, of that scripture lays out of what it looks like with baptism and regeneration. Do they go together? Are they uh, uh, co-temporaneous or, or are they not? And the right. answer is they're not. They, they're, they don't temporarily coincide with each other. Yep. Sure, significant. We don't have holy water. What we do have is the word of God. So what Luther says, it's the word of God present in and with the water that has the power, right? So it's the word of God that is proclaimed in and through the sacrament that regenerates. So baptism does regenerate, but it regenerates through the power and efficacy of the spirit working through the word of God in the water. Because, you know, there's that language too of it being like a visible word. It's like the visible gospel. So God works regeneration through the spirit, through the means of grace. And scripture both says that God works through his word and God works through baptism. What that means is that when we have the case of an adult who believes in Christ, we don't say they are not justified if they haven't been baptized. That doesn't make baptism a purely symbolic action afterward. In other words, this has been a criticism that's been leveled against, against Lutherans is that well, you say baptism regenerates, but you're only talking about infants. But for adults, baptism is just a symbol of something. Which he, he will basically end up saying, because he's not going to say that that it regenerates adults. Uh, 
but right because he'll, he'll say, say that simple. that justification yeah. when you're justified you're really justified you know it you're saved essentially yeah yeah yeah, His, yeah so he'll say like you're we're, we're continually saved but but as for the initial thing that he brought up of being regenerated like no really that would just be for infants under his view who who are baptized by water and adults who believe beforehand are regenerated beforehand but somehow not- some way it's a mystery <laughs> you have to i'd say no it's it's not does not just become a symbol and this maybe gets at another difference in the way that we're understanding the order salutis is it's not that the steps of the the steps because i don't want to use that much, but it's not that the aspects of the order salutis are all but it kind of functions as a step right because if you you're regenerated by the word you're saved you have real saving faith beforehand but then you have to be baptized, which apparently is is inseparably in your confession tied to salvation and regeneration. Um, then it kind of ends up being an order salutis if you break it up in this way. But yeah, he's he's probably getting at like what is because you you have the justification comes before sanctification, right? right? Order salutis, yep. but for him it comes before and after and during. So mm. uh, it's, yeah, it, it's conflate. He's conflating justification and sanctification to some extent here. Yes. Yeah, so, so it doesn't become so much of an order anymore. It's just, yeah, I guess maybe logically, but that's about all I would say. And it, and that goes back to how are you defining what baptism is and does. Yeah. And, and that seems to, to be fluctuating. All kind of one time only things. So it's not that we can say, well, because God regenerated me through the word, baptism now doesn't do anything. Baptism never has, every time baptismal language is used in scripture, it is language of God giving to us. So if the word of God does something and then we get baptized later, we can still say that that baptism is a means of grace. God is still bringing us forgiveness through that baptism. It doesn't mean that we didn't receive forgiveness through the word of God too. And forgiveness is something that is continual, right? Salvation is continual, not, not in like a ter- terms of a process, you know, as you find in, in Roman Catholic theology. It's not that there's a process of justification or something. We are declared perfectly and completely righteous, but that perfect declaration that we, that perfect declaration that we are righteous is not one that just happens once. Why do we pray for forgiveness day after day, right? Why does Jesus say in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses? We don't just say, well, thank you that I've been forgiven. We're praying for forgiveness every day. So there's this past. And we would have the category of uh, of uh, paternal uh, forgiveness. Like cause, uh, you, you have your eschatological justification before God, but then uh, you might have God's fatherly displeasure towards you mm-hmm. uh, for your sin. Not because the sin hasn't been ultimately forgiven and washed under the blood, but because in order for God to sanctify you, he has to start uh, raising the temperature on you, essentially. And if you, it, it's in order for you to acknowledge your sin, but being merciful as he is, as soon as you confess and acknowledge it with the heart to, uh, to turn from it, uh, he does forgive you and, and you'll be in his, his good graces again. Um, but so, so we don't, we don't, just say that you should just pray like, oh, thank you for forgiving me. Although that's not a bad thing to, to <laughs> pray for. And Paul certainly acts like we are forgiven past tense for all of our sins. Mm-hmm. Um, and that there's only one sacrifice for sins. So that's past, present, and future. Um, but uh, but you should also still pray for uh, continually for your forgiveness of sins, just not uh, eschat- eschatologically. You're not asking to forgive you for your sins because you're going to be condemned to hell if you don't confess. Now you're in Christ and there's no condemnation against you. Yeah. And that's the importance of keeping that distinction between uh, being declared righteous in a forensic sense and then subjective righteousness in sanctification in our daily walk. Uh, That was the, really the issue. And I'm not saying he's, uh, He's doing this exactly, but he he's conflating categories. But this is where the Catholic Church fell into to error in terms of infusion of righteousness. They conflated those categories. Um, you became subjectively righteous through faith instead of being objectively righteous uh, through forensic means of being declared righteous before God's tribunal. Um, and so you can see how that 
distinction has implications, either conflating it or not, has implications for the discussion here. Because uh, if you're saying that we're being continually justified, and that's tied to our continual repentance, uh, those categories have now been conflated. And we can't do that. We can't do that. When we're justified, it, it's it's done. We're, we're made righteous before God. Um, and I, he might be saying this too, to keep be consistent with his view of that uh, true Christians can actually apostatize and fall away. Because if you have to keep doing it, then that implies that you can fall out of it as well. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that might be part of it. Which is it's a scary thing in it. Uh, yes. Against the, the sure comfort uh, God's word presents us once we have come to the uh, fountain of life, that, that no one will pluck us out of the Father's hand. So Amen. That can be a very destructive aspect of Lutheranism. Uh, mm. it, you, you never remove the fear of God uh, for your condemnation that Luther himself wanted to remove so strongly. Like it's, yeah, it, it just adds it right back. To the fact yeah. That Christ could die for you. You can be grafted into him, but then one day he might spew you out. You don't, yeah. You don't. And, and what does that, that say about the effectiveness or, or the, yeah, the effectiveness of the atonement? Did it really yes. do its work or not? No. Yeah. And, and that's, <laughs> That's really the the part where this, uh, yeah, it gets into really dangerous territory. Like you almost want, like what's what's the implications of that? Yeah, like, Christ's atonement was of infinite worth. You can't receive that at any point of your life. If you're receiving an infinite forgiveness, there's no amount of future for sin sins that couldn't be covered by an infinite forgiveness. You see that at a time. I want to say Christ. Uh, atonement is so good that if it's so immense that there's it's impossible that there's any drop of sin you could cover that that you any drop of sin in your life that it couldn't cover past present or future once you receive it at any moment it's 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 that glorious and it's that wonderful uh and you start to lose sight of it now now obviously they would say it's of infinite worth like uh but but just the idea that you can receives receive it and then does not receive it despite its grandeur makes no sense to me and it's not in accord with scripture either for sure no no and, and neither is this idea in that you know tying back to continuous justification neither is that when well, no. it's signed sealed and done where you're in christ there is no condemnation while being in christ now i have heard him say that um because our faith is a subjective act, essentially, because we can do it's coming from us in the sense that we are believing we can essentially get out of it. Um, and that it creates problems, too, is is in John 10, when Jesus says that the sheep come to me, they hear my voice and no one can snatch them out of my father's hand. None can fall away. Um, it takes away the sovereignty of God and preserving us and keeping us um, along the way in spite of ourselves, because we would get out of it if we could. Our, yeah. our, as Christians, you know, we, we still follow our flesh, unfortunately, and, uh, and and we would fall away if we could, if, if it wasn't for our Lord's preserving hand upon us. Um, but yeah, the, it must cause some sort of worry for um, our Lutheran friends that uh, at any point I could fall away or I have to be re-justified. And because of that, that could leave the potential that maybe tomorrow I won't pray for forgiveness and I'll mm-hmm. just follow along the path of destruction, even though I, I believe in this gospel. I haven't run yeah. into any Lutherans that do seem to have that fear. Um, so I don't know. I would say it's more of a, you're, you're a little bit more confident than your system actually allows you to be. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't, I, don't, I can't say that I've run into someone who's, who's afraid like that. But um, it might it, cause it, it. I don't know. It might there might be some doubt at least. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's true. There has, there has, there has to, to be, be like some it. sort of doubt. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But it, it. But but you're right, Sean. That they that they do seem like pretty. Well, in fact, they'll usually uh, say that reformed uh, theology doesn't give you the same assurance because they're like, oh, ours is tied to the subjective event, mm-hmm. uh, baptism. Yeah. But, when they say that and at the same time will say, oh, but you can fall away from that grace given you in baptism at any time if you're not – if you don't believe and uh, confess your sins. Like how how are you in a better spot than we are as far as subjectivity goes? You're, you're in a much worse spot Like because ultimately it depends on your current faith right now if you're Lutheran uh, to be safe. It doesn't depend on whether you're baptized before because there are 
millions maybe of Lutherans who've been baptized and then fall away from the faith and go to hell under their own theology. I don't see what kind of comfort it gives them if their theology allows them to fall away from that objective sign. And so now it really just does still depend on your subjective faith you, you have in Christ. I could mm. say more than that, but that might start to get us too yeah. far off. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we've just been accused of straw manning Lutheran theology. Okay. Uh, your straw manning Lutheran position, you're conflating stereotypical responses to Arminian type theology. Um, I'd, I'd want him to be a little bit more specific. What specifically have we, uh, stereotyped? Yeah, that, that doesn't seem to be very clear. Yeah. Daniel, yeah. if you can provide more, uh, clear, uh, concise arguments in terms of what we are actually straw manning, that would be helpful. Obviously we, we don't agree with that right off the bat. Yeah. Yeah. We will move on. Reality of, of salvation. So we're talking about justification is. We're just, we are justified, have been justified. We are justified today as God's continuing to forgive and continuing to declare us righteous because of Christ. And we will be justified in the last day when we have that public declaration and the making of that justification a reality in the resurrection of the dead. So, so, so is justification not a reality now? Yeah. Well, we'll see. They've, they've made like almost two different types of justification here. Uh, yep. Justification is always eschatological. You can't you can't separate the two and say I'm justified right now, but not in the sense that I will be forgiven before for God. And Paul doesn't make that uh, distinction in that document. It's uh, here. Sorry, I'm, this is in my computer. <laughs> um, yeah, just because I had the the verse written out for me. Um, Romans five nine and ten. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies, we were, re we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So this justification that we have now is an eschatological justification. Uh, the past tense justification and current justification means that we shall be saved from wrath. So that's the wrath we would receive from him on the uh, before the thro throne of judgment. Uh and, and notice, it doesn't say you might be saved or you will be saved if you continue in these things. It says you shall be saved because you are present tense justified. Uh, just like other passages says, Whoever, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's, it's saying without condition, anybody who does this will yep. be saved. And Lutheran theology has to ultimately deny that they, they they'll say well what it really means is you shall be if you continue in these things but you don't see that in scripture that the being justified now is saying that you will be saved from wrath to come it's it's always eschatological and i don't even know what other kind of justification you can have maybe they would say um you're uh you're not in bondage to like you're you're saved now in the sense that you're not in bondage to sin like you were but uh is that really the case if you're you can be so in bondage to sin that you leave the faith altogether? And again, you you haven't just been placed in a neutral position like Adam. You've actually been removed from the bondage of sin to, as Scripture says, in bondage to Christ Himself. And as First John says, that who has the whoever has his seed, uh, whoever whosoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. We, we have that incorruptible seed uh, abiding in us, so we cannot totally and uh, finally uh, apostatize or, or sin the sin unto death. Uh, so, so in either case, it doesn't work. Justification is eschatological. There, there isn't this other kind of justification, at least not in Paul's language. Yep, that's exactly right. It's, it's a forensic righteousness. It's a forensic standing before God. It's a declaration that we are made right before God. And as a direct result of that, all of our sins, past, present, and future are forgiven unless there is a deficiency in that justification, uh, which Jordan would clearly say it is not. It, you are justified. You are, uh, it, it's, it's taken care of. Um, but we would see them as being inconsistent in this way, especially if you're giving the potential of, of apostasy or falling away. So all three of those things are true, past, present, future, in terms of justification. 
So with that being said, then we don't have to say, well, because someone was saved and was justified through the word, that means baptism now doesn't do anything. So it's something that, that we continually, continually receive. Uh, oh, a continuous regeneration. So the, the word regeneration actually, in, in, this is true in historical reform theology, is that some, and I believe William G.T. Shedd uses it in, ter in terms of a process. There's actually been a difference in terms of how to use that term regeneration. Some people refer to it as that very that first moment of receiving a new heart, but others refer to regeneration as that renewing of the heart process that we would probably usually call, call sanctification. So it depends on how you're really defining defining those terms. The only explicit place where that word regenerate, what the word regeneration is used, used twice in the New Testament, I believe. And there's once where Jesus speaks about the regeneration, which is the, the renewal of the earth. And then there's that passage in Titus, which is uh, specifically is about baptism. So baptism is the washing of regeneration. At least that's, that's the Lutheran contention, certainly. On So it, it almost seems like he's questioning what regeneration really is. Is it sanctification or is it the actual uh, moment before you actually, you, you know, you're regenerated, you're made a new creature, and then you're believing in faith in Christ? It almost yeah. seems like he's trying to present this. Well, it could be this or it could be that. But yeah, he's, he was, um, it sounded to me like he ultimately said, like it's, he would call that more sanctification, the continual That's process. That's what it seems like, um, yes. Yeah, he's not wrong to say that the term's been used uh, differently historically, even by reform people, like John Calvin uh, used it in that sense. Um, but at that issue, it's an issue of semantics, and that's that's taking us beyond our purpose as far as what we're defining here, which is like that life giving uh, work of the spirit, the infallible work of the spirit to produce faith in your heart. That's definitely at an instant. That's not a process. Yep. And that happens before your faith. Uh, and it doesn't happen by means of the water, but by means of the preaching of the word and the mm -hmm. spirit working through that to give you life. That's the only uh, testimony scripture gives us of the subject. And I will say it happens logically prior to uh, faith. It doesn't happen temporally prior. No. Yeah, yeah it happens at yep. the exact moment. So it's, it's logically prior, logically necessary. The Spirit must regenerate you for you to have faith. But it, we're not saying that the Spirit regenerates you and then 10 minutes later you have faith. That is no. correct. Yep. Yeah. Thanks for clarifying that, Sean. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And the, these are important issues. You know, we're, we're talking about salvation here. Um, you know, we, we do believe that uh, Jordan is a brother. We think he's just as Leighton Flowers terms like to use blessed inconsistency. Uh, I will. I think that's a that's a did, pretty good. Uh, did Leighton Flowers come up with that, or did James White come I up? I think with that? James White came up. He with might it. have stole it and from him. Okay. Flowers. Where, yeah. I think he yeah. used that um, yeah. on our show when he was on our when mm -hmm. Leighton was on our show. But okay. to, I mean, to be fair, I wasn't listening to Leighton Flowers first, so maybe he did it and James White copied it, but. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, I, I think it's a good term to use because it, it is a blessed inconsistency, I think. You know, he, he's being insistent, but it's not one that is leading. You know, we, we wouldn't necessarily call him a, a heretic or he's compromising the gospel. Um, he, he does believe in justification by faith alone. He does believe that Christ is the only way of salvation. Uh, we, we stand next to him and, and confess Christ with him. Um, but these are important distinctions because of what we talked about this evening. The, the implications of them, if taken to their logical conclusion, uh, will be deadly. They will be deadly spiritually. Um, so we have to be very careful with our terminology. This is one thing that I think is lost in evangelicalism today, where we do see uh, this lack of clarity uh, in our speech. Um, our pastor has referred to, you know, being precise in our language or the the old men being precise our language is it's very important that we are precise in what we say because it can lead others astray if we're not careful it can uh, it can uh, it can deceive us even if we're not careful so making sure that we are uh, using language that is appropriate as best as we can uh, can help keep us very because ultimately your actions are going to follow what you believe what you believe about god what you believe about salvation um, will affect and have an impact on how you live your life before God. So it's it's absolutely crucial that we are precise in our language um, in order to avoid these pitfalls. All right. Well, I think that's all we have for today. Um, I'm going to take a look at the, the comment section and see if there's anything we can address real quick. Uh, have you guys already addressed it? Yes, we addressed some of them, uh, Michael. Uh, we didn't address hit all of them, but we hit some of them earlier on. 
Um, let's see. What is blessed? In, what's the blessed inconsistency? We talked about that. Um, Andy Ashen, most likely that we have paradoxes or tension in our theology. I'm not sure if that is a Lutheran or not. Michael's a Lutheran. So Lutherans are aware of the paradoxes that exist. Oh, yeah, okay, paradoxes. Especially with his so, picture. Yeah, well, we would, we would say what you would call paradoxes are actual contradictions. Yes. That, that, would, yeah. be our, that would be our assertion. Yeah, yes. yeah we, we want to be careful to distinguish between mystery, which there is mystery. Nobody knows how the uh, hypostatic or personal union of Christ, uh, how that happens, how the divine nature and the human nature is come together so that nothing is lost between either of them. Or uh, we don't, no one can comprehend God in his essence. Um, many mysteries, uh, e- even what exactly is communicated through the means of grace, such as baptism, Lord's Supper. Like we don't, we're not given like a textbook definition of like this, this, the spirit does this much here and there. We, we're just told what he doesn't do. Um, uh, but, uh, but there's a difference between that and, and a classic like, oh, A and not A at the same time in the same way contradiction. And we would put many of the things Lutheranism asserts on, in, in that camp. Yep, yep. Hopefully that, that can clarify uh, what we're talking about here. But anyways, um, I think that's all we have for today. Uh, thank you very much for everyone for joining us. Hope this has been helpful uh, and beneficial. Uh, Lord willing, uh, we'll be back next week. Sean, you're teaching next week, right? I am, yes. Okay, so Sean will be bringing us um, another equipping hour lesson from Covenant Reformed Baptist Church uh, next Sunday for our, our episode. Um, but with that, everyone have a great evening, and uh, we'll see you next week. God bless. God bless.